Oh, a lot of when you, a lot of you, when you come to see me on a weekly basis, you tell me how it's gone. It's been a good week. It was good part of the week. Then it was so good. It wasn't so good, but then it got better. Like describing the weather. <laughs> it was rainy for a while, but then it cleared up. But then it, it got rainy again. But then it cleared up. I don't know if it ever rain again, but it might. And so that's one way of evaluating how your practice is going, <laughs> is what happens to you. And another way of evaluating, evaluating your practice is how you're practicing. What happens to us isn't very much in our control. You wake up in the morning, are you going to have a very calm mind or a very agitated mind? Are you going to control that? Don't think so. There's biology involved, there's weather involved, there's digestion, there's past life karma, there's dredging in the psyche, there's all kinds of things involved that are not simply for us to control. All of you are doing the, the hard work, the good work, the meaningful work of seeking to cultivate greater balance of mind and of heart. And all of us here, I don't know that there's anyone here younger than 25. There isn't anybody? Anybody? Tw oh, of course, 24, I know that. Anybody, anybody younger than Carissa? Anybody at all? Do I hear 23, 23, 23, 20, 23, 20? 24 has it. <laughs> okay, 24, but only by that much. So we've had at least two full cycles in the Indian, the Chinese, Tibetan, the Tibetan calendars, two full cycles, 12-year cycles to profoundly and very successfully, at least some of us, quite a, few, quite a few cycles of 12, we've had a good deal of time, put in a lot of effort, and we've been magnificently successful in mastering OCDD, of getting very habituated and quite expert at attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We really know how to do it. We know how to, to try really hard and to clench up and get our mind really agitated. We know how to beef it up, you know, really super propel it with craving and hostility. We know exactly how to do that. And then we know what it's like after getting really agitated for a very, all kinds of reasons, then to feel dull and kind of spaced out and lethargic and heavy and maybe a bit depressed afterwards. So we really know how to do that. And it took a lot of time, you know, to really master it. But I think we all came there with those skills very, very well accomplished before we arrived here. And that was at least two times 12, okay, years. With hardly any outside forces, I mean, a little Tony Karam here, a little Lama Michael Conklin there, Alan Wallace going chirp, chirp, chirp once in a while, you know, but very little resistance, very little in the way of the world outside saying, hey, you know, that might not be such a good idea, <laughs> you know, because the whole world is basically flowing downstream. And now for, 12, for five weeks, strangely enough, some of you still haven't overcome that habit. And I'm profoundly disappointed, and I'm thinking of going home very quickly. <laughs> so what we're doing is we're swimming out through the surf, trying to catch that great wave. We can see them over yonder, at least in our imagination. The perfect curl, the offshore wind, the glass.
glassy surface. The surfers that are just cruising along world class and say, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and in the meantime, these little three-foot waves are beating the crap out of us, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> if you've ever watched surfers, because I had a brief spell of surfing when I was 19, 19 years old. If you've ever watched surfers trying to get out to the really good waves, like, you know, like Waimea or some really other fantastic world-class beaches, you know, we have 15-foot waves, 20, 25-foot waves on a really big day. Uh, unless they're jet skiing, doing the modern high-tech approach, they just swim out through those waves. And the first ones really are these little frothy two-footers, and you, and you just kind of... But after a while, you're swimming through eight-foot waves that are crashing right on top of you. And you just can't go backwards, you can't go forwards fast enough, and they just dump their whole load on top of you. You know what the surfers do at that point? They flip over, and so the board is on top of them, and let that whole weight of the water crash on the board, and they just go like that, because there's nothing else you can do. You can't, you can't tur turn your surfboard into a submarine. You can't turn it into a helicopter. So you just turned it into an upside-down infirmary. <laughs> and you just go down below it, you know, and let all that water dump on your surfboard, which protects you quite well. It's still very turbulent, but at least you don't need to be beaten up quite so much. When it, as soon as it's flown, you know, swept past, then you flip over, over a course and then head out, and you see the next, the w next wave is going to be coming. But you just get as far as you can until the next wave hits, and then you flip over and beats the crap out of you again and, until finally you're beyond all of it. And then you can see the waves coming, and you can position yourself to actually enjoy the substrate consciousness. <laughs> so what we're doing here is swimming out through the waves of our own psyche. And sometimes it comes up biologically, just heaviness, or it's, it's a lot of chop, not, not having a really hard time even getting a good night's sleep. Chop, getting two, two hours of sleep here and then waking wide up, bushy, wide awake and bushy-tailed, whatever they say. You know, I don't know about bushy-tailed, but in any case, wide awake at, you know, 12.30 at night. And so it's emotions coming up, it's insomnia coming up, it's sleepiness coming up or coming down. It's agitation, it's all this, it's emotions, it's memories, it's fear, it's anxiety. It's losing all motivation together. It's everything. It's your psyche. It's your psyche. It's the waves of your psyche. And the further out you go, for those of you who have studied, some of you have had some real experience tra traversing a bit along the nine stages, you'll find that the further you go along those nine stages, especially up to stage six, the waves get bigger. You know, just get the waves get bigger. Get, stage, get to stage six out of nine stages preceding shamatha, and that's when you get those real anomalies in the classic accounts of shamatha, right straight from Sonkhaba and others, is that's when you're trying to catch a 25-foot wave, but you're being beaten up by a 15-foot wave, or maybe even a 25-foot wave. You can't quite get there in time, and 25 feet of water dumps on you, right? That's the one you wanted to catch, but you weren't quite there, you know, not far enough out. So stage six is quite, quite something. A lot of stuff comes up. And it's not, a, a number of my students have gotten to that point, stage six students, people I've been training. And I wouldn't say of a single one of them 
that they're stuck. It's just there's a lot of stuff to process at that point. Because if you get beyond stage six, if you not only get little peaks into stage seven, let alone stage eight, but if you actually dwell in stage seven, where there's hardly any chance of even subtle laxity or subtle excitation arising. You just kind of, you know, watch closely and then they, oh, you know, they scoot away. By the time you get to stage seven, certainly eight, you're out beyond the breakers. You're out beyond the breakers. And it's almost like you've achieved stream entry vishamata. That is, barring just something coming up where you just have to break the retreat. Um, there's just no reason. If, as long as you stay in retreat, just don't go off, you know, do a bunch of stuff, but just stay in retreat. Then it's just basically like those surfers who are out beyond all the break, and they're right there where they can choose whatever they wave they like, and they'll have to paddle a little bit to catch the wave, but they won't be crunched anymore. You know what? You know what? That's where they all hang out, sitting on their boards, chatting, just enjoying being surfers. Um, but they're like on stage seven, stage eight. And then all they need to do is just paddle a little bit, and then they just catch the wave that takes them to shamatha. So swimming out through the surf of your own mind with all the stuff that comes up, and knowing that it's not constant, and you'll have some time as you're surfing out thinking, oh, this is going really smoothly. You're just not looking up to see the next five-footer about to crunch your brains out, you know. <laughs> it's going really well for three days, and then this five-foot wave hit, you know. Well, look up. You know, you'll see it coming. But take it all in stride. Take it with a bit of humor. And if you see that what you're doing is just fundamentally, irreversibly, incontestably, and indub indubitably worthwhile, then you just bring up your sisu. You just bring up your courage and say, hey. Because I know meditators. I know people who have meditated for 20, 25, 30 years, never learned how to relax. They did Vipassana, they did state regeneration, they did Vajrasattva, they did Lamrim and Lamrim and Lamrim. And all of these are wonderful practices. I'm not criticizing them one schmidgen. But if you don't learn how to relax, if you don't learn how to calm the mind, then, you know, to use that metaphor from yesterday, it's like you're having Handel's Messiah as background music for the chit-chat of your mind. <laughs> you know, like what you really came to the concert hall what for was to hear a whole bunch of people chattering. And in the background, oh, there's Handel's Messiah. It's kind of nice background music. And what was that you were saying? Oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, blah, 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 So to be aware of the big picture, and as you're evaluating from day to day, which is hard not to do, although it's a really good idea not to do it, but from day to day, evaluating your practice, if you can shift over more to an old yogi's perspective rather than a novice's perspective. A novice's perspective goes, I had this really good session, it was really great, and then described the really one, and the next few days really sucked, but that one session was really, really good. Okay, there's the novice perspective, and I understand that, I'm, I'm not ridiculing that at all. But the old, old yogi's perspective was, I was practicing. And when I, do, when I was doing it correctly, I knew I was doing it correctly. At times I, g I got a bit sloppy, but I recognized that, and I unsloppified it, got back on track. Then I saw some really heavy stuff coming up, and I recognized now's another time to push, now's time to go out for a mindful walk and let my awareness be really spacious and relaxed and be really friendly to myself. 
and not beat myself up because a lot of emotions are coming up or tiredness is coming up or what have you because this is a practice of loving kindness from inside out. So as we have these last three weeks, I'd like you just to bear in mind what my aspiration is for what it's worth. And that is not that at the, at during the last week or the last two weeks, you're going to just come to me and say, wow, this was just a great week. And I always like to hear that, of course, why not? But rather over the, uh, over, com over the coming three weeks, if you find, you know, I'm getting more confidence in these practices. And even when I have a really rotten day, I know what to do with it. I know what to do with it. When just a whole bunch of OCDD comes up, I know what to do with it. I know I can go into the infirmary. I know I can lighten up. I can know I can practice a bit of loving kindness. I might shift to over to mudita. I might go out for a nice spacious walk, maybe even a long walk. Uh, I know I might want to modify the diet, eat a little bit more, eat a little bit less. It was kind of a rough day, but I handled it well. Then I had some really smooth days, and I handled that well too. You know? And so that over these next three weeks, you have a growing sense of confidence for each of these modes of shamanta, each of the modes of the four immeasurables, that, yeah, I know, how to, I know how to practice those. And when I'm doing them correctly, I know I'm doing it correctly. When I get sloppy, I know about that. And I know how to rectify it. That kind of confidence. So it's like a soldier. I've, I've, I've occasionally likened this to boot camp or basic training, which I think takes about, as about the, anybody been in the military? It's about, isn't it about two months? Anybody know? Klaus has been in the military. I think it's about two months just for basic, basic training. How do you shoot your gun? How do you take it apart and all that kind of stuff? I don't think it's very long. And then they'll ship you off. After two months, three months, they'll ship you off. You're in America. Welcome to Afghanistan, you know? And so, but in, let's say, two, two months, then you do know pretty much everything you need to know about your basic equipment and how to use all of your basic equi equipment. And then, if you're so unfortunate to be posted into, you know, battle, well, you don't expect to win all your battles, but you do expect to know how to use all your equipment for every battle, whether you win it or lose it. And some battles are best fought by retreating, and some best fought by advancing, some just by holding your ground. So that the soldiers can't control. They can't control whether they win or lose. But they can control whether they're using all their equipment properly, at the right time, in the right way. And so there we go. So take heart. Take heart. We've had a lot of time to accustom ourselves to the opposite of relaxation, stability, and vividness. And if it takes you know, another three weeks to really learn how to deal with you know, the opposite of relaxation, to explore like you've never explored before, and a lot of old meditators still haven't gotten around to it because they're just always trying so hard. But exploring the levels of tension, at least one person, I think more, has, has commented to me in a one-on-one -on -one meetings, I've now discovered a level of tension, of tightness, of constriction I never knew I had. And I, was, I just want to say, hallelujah, good. Better discover that now than never discover it and just be carrying it around like some virus that's just eating you alive your whole life. You know, good, you've, you've discovered something. This means now that you've discovered it, it's been made conscious, now you can apply antidotes to it. But if you don't even know it's there, all of your practice will be skimming across the surface of that and never penetrating it. None of the other practices, Dumo, Poa, Vajrasattva, three-year retreats, Vipassana, and so forth, none of those are designed to do what shamatha is designed to do. 
they all have their wonderful own specificities that what they were specifically designed to do. But none of them were designed to cultivate relaxation, stability, and vividness. That's what we have more than 40 methods of shamatha for. So, chin up. <laughs> Stoop upper lip. <laughs> this is worth doing. Yeah. I don't think you need to be persuaded at this point. So there's that. Let's see what the Daily Mail is. Yeah, here's another option, and we can, we can vote on this on Monday as well. Is it possible that in the morning uh, we have non-guided meditations uh, and in the afternoon guided meditations? And I, I'm just wide open to anything. So it, we can vote on that one as well. So you can think about it at your leisure. Okay? Sure. Sure. And then here's one. Um, yeah. This one's, this one's uh, made of nitroglycerin. Um, and before I, I won't, I won't dodge it. I'll just postpone it. Um, any questions about practice? This is, this is big dharma in the modern world kind of question. Any, any, any questions, issues coming up about the practice we've been doing? We'll start with Jacob. So for the um, the four measurables practices, mm -hmm. um, the thing we do often at the end, the releasing appearances yeah. and all, um, yeah. I find that it's uh, it can feel nice to just do that throughout the practice every five minutes or so. Every five minutes or so. Is yeah. that an approach that's given that's sometimes? Fine. No problem. Sure. Okay. That was easy. Yeah. Good. Take a little breather. Just come back home. Because all of this, again, this wonderful kind of dance between the developmental and the discovery. Okay? So when we're actively using imagination, visualization, discursive thinking, and so forth, this is clearly devel developmental and has trem me, tremendous potential. I mean, it's proven. It's not a hypothesis. It's, it's, all you have to do is look at His Holiness Dalai Lama. He's very, very strongly, in his own practice, his own personal practice, he's made it quite clear, very strongly oriented towards the developmental approach discursive practice, stage of generation, madhyamaka analysis, analytical meditation, uh, active cultivation of bodhicitta. He's a dynamo of that. Now, of course, he's been trained by Dimbo Genzi Rinpoche, and I don't know what other lamas in Dzogchen as well. So he also, of course, he has both. But in terms of overall emphasis, very, very strongly developmental. And I think it's pretty clear it worked. It worked. At the same time, then we have people like Dimbo Genzi and others you know, where it's, of course, they're also doing developmental. There's just no question about it. Stage regeneration, stage inclusion. There's no Nyingma tradition that doesn't have those. And the, and the preliminary practices, they're very strongly developmental, right? At the same time, very strong emphasis on the Dzogchen, the discovery, and they're, you know, these extraordinary lamas. So, yeah, balance, balance. When I'm doing mindfulness of breathing, sometimes there's this um, very nice memory of uh, the kindness of others showing it yes. towards me. So right. I feel like this uh, need 
of, uh, of doing short uh, empathetic joy, for example, or mm -hmm. like brief version. I don't know. I, uh -huh. Probably I'm not supposed to do it, but yeah. um, is nice it possible or not? Yeah, these are, like, these are nice little loving thoughts. Maria, don't achieve shamatha. <laughs> I'm really nice. Come over here. It's much more pleasant here. You don't need shamat. It's boring. Come over here. <laughs> and so I'm giving you straight teachings from Tsongkhapa. If you're doing shamatha, just do shamatha. Yeah. There's two words in Tibetan. One is gopa, the other one's toa. Gopa, then translating as excitation. Literally, the word, the word gopa means wild, like wild, like a wild horse. And so, for example, tage, ta means horse. Tage means wild horse. Okay, so it's a flat, a straight translation. So, gopa, which I translate as excitation, has that connotation of being a bit wild, right? Like that. Uh, but by definition, so this is technical speak. This is not just English, ordinary words. Uh, this mental factor of gopa. It's defined as the agitation that stems from craving, attachment, mental affliction, mental affliction of craving and attachment. Okay? Now, is everything that disturbs the mind, or is all of the agitation, the distractions of the mind, do they all stem from craving and attachment? The answer is no. No. One, absolutely not. That is, there we go, no. Um, so, but... What's this other word? The other word is toa. So gopa, the wild, excitation. Toa. Toa is a word that just means to disperse, to go out. So there you were. Your awareness was coalesced. It was, it was gathered like your, your, as if your mind is in the, the mind is the wild stallion within the corral of your body as you're attending to it, breathing out, relaxing, but containing your awareness within the field of the body and the undulations of the breath, right? And then suddenly this wild horse of your mind jumps over the corral, jumps over the fence, and <laughs> And maybe it's, I really love my llamas. I take refuge in the Bidharam and Sangha. I want to make offerings. Yeehaw! <laughs> gloop, 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 gloop. <laughs> you know, you all. <laughs> all right. That's toa. It's not attachment. That's a virtuous state of mind. But the horse has still jumped over the fence, you know, and it's still going off there. So... So there can be this toa, which is, I generally translate as agitation, but it's really dispersion. If I want to be really literal translation, and I like that often, it's dispersion. It's dispersion. It may be virtuous. Uh, it may be just neutral, ethically neutral. It can be driven by anger, resentment. It can be fear. It can be all kinds of things. And then there's excitation, which is specifically desire-driven. And, and the emphasis, you'll hear me sp use the word excitation probably ten times as many times as I'll use the word agitation or dispersion because I'm reflecting exactly the tradition. Most of that which propels us out of our shamatha is driven by desire. Right? Nostalgia, desire for the future, desire for something in the present, and so forth. So, when you're doing shamatha, first of all, setting the motivation at the beginning, okay, this is going to be shamatha. There are a lot of other very cool practices, and I acknowledge you, sadhu, 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 <laughs> but... Mind is going to be shamatha for 24 minutes. Get over it. <laughs> you know, just sit down and do shamatha. Right? And then if it's just not working, 
if you see after, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes in it, into it, the mind's not up for it. It just can't do it. Then you can try something else. You can get up and take a walk. You can, try, you can then specific, but then you terminate your shamatha. You say, okay, shamatha's not working right now. So it's going to be loving kindness. It's going to be something else. Okay? So when it's shamatha, just let it be shamatha. Yes. Nikwala. Hello. Hello. So in the practice of settling the mind, um, where we uh, spiral into the field yes. of the mind mm -hmm. through all the other visual yes. fields, yes. I kind of missed the point of what we do with thoughts when they arise while we are in those other visual fields while we're in those other fields of experience and not in the mental yeah. field. Yeah, this is, again, this is a, kind of an Alan, Alan Wallace entry. That is, if you receive any classic teachings on settling the mind in its natural state, they almost certainly won't say that. You know, spiral in like an airplane in a holding pattern and then come and land. Um, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. So why do, why do I teach it? Because a lot of Westerners find it hard. Well, where do I go? Where, where's, the, where's the landing strip? Where do I go? Where's it, where is the space of the mind? And so it's, it's a process of elimination. Well, there's the visual, not that. There's the auditory, not that. The tactile, not that. Olfactory, gustatory, forget about it. So what's left? What else is immediately appearing to your awareness that, that you al haven't already checked out? The visual you saw, auditory and tactile, those are the three big ones, not that. Anything else directly manifesting to your awareness? Oh, yeah, thoughts. Mental image, oh yeah, feeling, whatever. And so that's why I do it. Yeah, just to make that really clear, I'm, I'm being a bit, bit innovative here, but it's just trying to help people get into the practice and then forget the holding pattern. Now, of course, that was inspired by the Buddha's discourse to Bahia. That's pretty classic, right? And he said exactly do that. So in a way, I'm just teaching Bahia and then settling the mind in its natural state. So, but what to do, now I'll give a short answer. When you're focusing on the visual field, Thoughts are not occurring in that visual field, so release them instantly. This is single-pointed attention on the space of the visual and whatever arises within it. Well, thoughts don't arise in that visual. Okay? Even if you look at me and visualize Mickey Mouse on top of my head, the Mickey Mouse that appears is not appearing in the visual. It's appearing in the space of your awareness, of mind, which you're superimposing upon the visual. So it's a mental creation that you're seeing only with mental awareness. Your eyeballs, your optic nerve, visual cortex will be activated, but you're not seeing it with visual perception. It's something that's being superimposed, dumped into the visual field, but it, that's only because of the overlap of your, the field of mind, dhammadhatu, relative dhammadhatu. Dhammadhatu subsumes all of the five fields, and it has its own unique domain wherein thoughts, dreams, and so forth arise. And so when you visualize Mickey Mouse on top of my head, it's appearing in Dharma Datu, but not the Datu of sight, of color, of, of visual form, right? But, so how did it get there? What, why, is not, why is it not gibberish to say that, wait a minute, but you said visualize Mickey Mouse on top of your head, and that's in my visual field. That's right. But that's because your Dharma Datu is superimposed upon the visual field, and you put it in one, and therefore it appears in the other but it appears only to 
mental awareness. Now, when I look at you with my eyeballs, with my visual perception, I should say, and I'm gazing at, at the, the visual appearance of your face, this I'm picking up with visual perception, and because I'm paying attention, I'm also picking up with mental awareness. So I'm picking up both. Okay? And the visual appearance of your face is also appearing in the space of my mind. But when we're settling the mind in this natural state, we're attending to those phenomena that arise only in the space of the mind and not any other sensory field. And that's what allows the other sensory fields over the course of nine stages to gradually implode into mental. Okay? Now, this, this uh, reminds me of one point I wanted to make just at the outset also. And that is, we have some people, and we, we know, so I have, I have no... I'm not divulging any secrets. Alma's been, was in the, in the three-month Shamatra retreat in 2007 and fairly continuously in retreat ever since then. Okay, that's a lot of practice. And Pedro in the three-month retreat, but I think a lot, good deal of practice since then. Uh, Victoria, and I won't try to, you know, if I left anybody else, I'm just taking a, a few examples here. But these are not the, fir the first people. In the, in the spring retreat, we had at least one person, and my, but one person really jumps to mind, who was also in the, in the Shamatha project, came back after being in a fair amount of, re of re practice, but not strict retreat, but a good deal of practice in between, and then came to the eight-week retreat. What I found, now this is, I'm kind of pretending as if I'm a scientist here, uh, what I found, and it's really been quite uniform, is that people who have done a three-month retreat, who have done an eight-week retreat, um, and then for a while they're either in retreat, or they have choppy retreat, they can be in retreat, then they have to change, or not in retreat, or what have you, but then they come back for another retreat. I found this now is definitely a regularity. These people have far fewer obstacles in the practice. Even though, maybe for months in between the first retreat and the second one, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and the mind gets scattered, and they're doing this, that, and the other thing, and so forth. But the impact of the first retreat does not vanish. If you look at it at, at, at a on a daily basis after the retreat and you're there in downtown Mexico City or in London or what have you, you might feel, oh, my shamatha is gone. There's nothing here. It's just, oh, it's ordinary. That's true. It's very true. What you're observing is what you observe and it's right on the surface. But the imprints, the imprints of having spent three months practicing six, seven, eight hours a day, that doesn't go away. And what I found, of course, I've been done a bit of practice myself, so I can also speak a bit first person, but I like to attend more to other people's practice because that's a lot more people than me, is that these eight weeks that you spend here, even two weeks after this is all over, if you're now very much immersed back in your daily life, you might be looking back on the good old days in Phuket where life was so simple and you could have a lot of time for practice and now you don't because you have other obligations and you might feel, whoa, that's really over. The fat lady has sung, you know, it's <laughs> over, <laughs> you know. And sure, Phuket's over, but the seeds are there. And I found this to be true repeatedly. It's, it's a regularity. It's normal. The seeds are there. And should the opportunity arise, because you really want it to arise, and you either create for yourself an environment or you find an environment and you find six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, Oh, another opportunity has arisen for an eight-week retreat, three-month retreat. Maybe you want to go off. Like one of, one of my students, three-month retreat, and then he saw this is what he really wanted to do with his life. And mature adult, so he said, okay, this is it for the life, 
So here's what I need to do. And he adjusted this, adjusted that, adjusted that. Now he's found himself a retreat place, and now he's ready to go and be, have a life sentence. You know, just be a yogi for life. And he's got his financial situation in hand. Took, but it took three years to wrap everything up, and no spouse, no children, no dependents, and now he can just be focusing. Uh, that was three years, a lot of a work. So I will make a bold prediction for this person. When he gets back into his retreat, he's going to find, oh, I was certainly had a lot of scattered mind in between, but, ha, ah, there's something familiar here. It's not to say your problems are over, but it is to say that the, the expertise, the familiarity, the learning how to ride a bicycle that takes place in eight weeks, it's not going to go away. It doesn't vanish. It doesn't vanish in one lifetime. And from lifetime to lifetime, it doesn't vanish either. So the deeper you go, the deeper the familiarization, then even if on occasion you have to make forays out into the world and you feel like you know, your mind is back to normal, the momentum is there. So I would take heart with that. This is not just a pep talk, because I didn't know whether this would be the case or not you know, with other people. I know my own experience, so that's, that's one person. But this has really been very regular. And so good grounds for encouragement. Just three weeks? Yeah, but that's eight weeks of real familiarization on just becoming as sane as we can, as we can be, and really dealing with all this stuff that gets dredged up from the psyche in the process, and knowing this is just eminently worthwhile. Because it's so easy, frankly, it's so easy, and not just for Buddhists, for Christians and Jews and all kinds of people, humanists, people who have no religion. It's so easy to overlook the underlying stuff, the tightness, the suppressed emotions, the memories, the desires, and the most common way in the, in the modern world to deal with it is just work. Because that has societal approval. If you're just working your brains out, you wake up in the morning and you're on the phone, wake up in the morning, oh, where's my computer? Oh, 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 there's my email. Okay, I am working. You know, you get societal approval. Oh, this person really is a hard worker. And that's praise. You know? And yet we can use work as an anesthetic. And we're not working, then we're working on crossword puzzles or we're working on digging a hole and filling it up again. You know, just anything to cover up what we don't want to see. And I know for a number of you, at least on some occasions during these last five weeks, it's been painful. And because there's nothing to cover up. You had, we had no music, we had no internet, we had no television. You couldn't even chat it away, you know, with idle chatter. And so the anesthetic was off, there it was, and you got to deal with what was already there. And that really is the beauty of these practices. The mindfulness of breathing, the settling, the awareness of awareness. That you, one thing you can be, I think, totally confident of is by spending six, seven, eight hours a day doing those practices, at least you're not dumping more garbage into your mind, even religious garbage. You know, you're just not dumping anything into the mind, right? The breath was already there, the mind was already there, awareness was already there, and so there you are, becoming more sane. So if it's a bit painful on occasion, then just think how many painful days you had before you ever heard about Dharma. Were there any ups and downs before you heard about Dharma? Good days, bad days? So, anything more about practice?
Yeah, good, Fernando. Regarding uh, awareness of awareness, yeah. when expanding the awareness upwards, downwards to the sides, yeah. it's difficult for me uh, to understand in which moment is actually my awareness or my imagination. Right, it. it's subtle. And so, good question. Um, ideally, one would be simply directing upwards without visualizing, just simply, the, the, bear in mind the attention is normally like a vector. Right, so I'm going to go from Jennifer, you know, there goes my attention to Jennifer, and then, you know, I'm buzzing Fernando. So that didn't take any imagination. I simply directed the, like the lighthouse, the beam of my attention, and it tends to be a pretty small beam according to scientific research on visual perception, the area within the broader visual field that's really uh, ha is heavily, you know, has a lot of pixels, a lot of high, high definition, is very small, very small, considering the overall field. So it's really something like a laser or a searchlight that gets focused here, focused there. <coughs> but obviously we don't have to visualize simply to direct the attention. And likewise, if I sh should say, ah, What's that sound over coming from, from my right? Wh what is that sound? That's probably the best analogy. Uh, I'm hearing something. Do you hear it also to my right? L listen carefully to my right. Do you hear it? It's a, it's a sound that I hear from quite a distance. It's not from in within the room. But what, is that a dog barking? What is that? Or is it a child crying? It seems to be quite far away. Listen very carefully to my right, way over there. Can you hear it? You can't because it's not there. <laughs> but you didn't have to visualize one kilometer. You didn't have to visualize jungle. You didn't have to visualize anything, did you? You just directed your attention. That's the best example. Because visual is right there in your face, right? But we can. We know what it's like to direct our auditory awareness to something nearby. In fact, I did this in an earlier retreat. Um, I'll do it for fun just right now. I'm going to close my eyes and some, uh, a person whose first name starts with H, please say hi. I hit her right shoulder. I hit her right shoulder. Because right? I, I pointed before my eyes were open, right? That's how good, I mean, I'm showing, there's nothing showing off here. This is utterly ordinary. I presume you all know that. But that's not bad, because she's like 25 feet away, and I hit her right shoulder with my finger. And she just said, hi. So I missed her mouth by six inches. Right? That's how good the auditory vectoring is. And that's just totally normal. Right? And so that's what I'm talking about. Right? That I knew, to, I knew it would be near, nearby, because I'm not going to get somebody from outside. But there it is. I knew the direction, and I also knew it wasn't very far away. So it's quite amazing what the, the, visual, the auditory can do. Because we can tell whether a sound is coming from far away or near, and, it, and I missed it by six inches at 25 feet. That's pretty good vectoring. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Now having said that, maybe I'm using a bit more words than necessary, is you're just directing your attention as if in the auditory field, but it's just purely into the mental. 
and you're just directing it up as far as you can, like when I said, way over yonder, can you hear that faint, distant call? Like that, and off you go. At the beginning, if necessary, and I gave somebody else a special permission, I have to give everybody permission, if at the beginning of the practice, when you're just kind of getting the hang of it, if you find it helpful to visualize, you know, like a translucent bubble, you know, like kids blowing bubbles, like a translucent bubble of a bubble bulging out to the right, and bulging up to the up above, to the, to the left and down, go ahead and do it. But as soon as you can, see that, okay, that's again trainer wheels. It's like counting the breaths. It's like deliberately giving yourself a target in settling the mind. But go ahead and do it at the beginning. And as I mentioned earlier to one person in a one-on-one, -on -one, and that is a whole idea here, I, my sense of it. Why did Padmasambhava teach this? And by the way, why did the Buddha teach it? Because the Buddha also taught this. It's called expanding or extending the kasina, right? Uh, and that is to give that sense of spaciousness overall, that when you're attending to the space of awareness, you're not locked inside your skull. You're not in a little place. You're not inside your body. It's spacious every, every which way. And it's quite significant. And this is why I, I have s so much confidence in relying on classics. On classics, you know. There, there's this text was revealed in the 14th century, I believe. Natural Liberation. Traces back to Padmasambhava in the 8th century. When something is around that long and it's being practiced, it's not just some old junk, you know idle chatter, this old idle chatter, then there's probably significance in every single step. The fact that he goes up, right, left, down, and then into the heart, and then what did he do? As after he goes into a little white dwarf, if we think of this as a star collapsing in upon itself, into a little white dwarf, and then, whoops, critical mass, <laughs> supernova. Okay? So you go into a center, but the center is not up in your head, it's the center is right where your prana are of the life force energy. This is the center where your energies will converge when you fall, when you fall asleep, when you achieve shamatha, when you die. So this is the heart. This is the nucleus. Uh, and so you go there, which gives you a sense of location, but not the congealing of energy in the head. But once you've gone there, then you just go supernova, out into space in all directions, not just the space in front. And then... And now that you've really expanded, you went up, down, blah, 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 and now you've just gone every which way, all at once, with no object. Then, then let your awareness just rest. Without putting it here or putting it there, rest it where it already is, without going anywhere else, without the vector. Like that, okay? You really want me to deal with the nitroglycerin, huh? Okay, let's see. How can one know if a teacher is genuine, even if he or she is controversial? Some, us, some, us, some of us are interested in the teachings of some of these teachers, and I think I won't mention their names. I think I just prefer not to. Um, but as I'm reading them, um, definitely controversial, wildly controversial, Maybe controversial, I don't really know. Totally controversial. <laughs> and quite controversial. <laughs> and when I say controversial, um, you know, people like all kinds of things. For some people, Madonna isn't controversial. 
she's normal. (laughs) It's whose perspective is it? The Roman Catholic Church, her fans, her kids, you know, mom is normal. That's why she's mom, you know. And so, but when I say controversial, there is, for example, and this is really, I think, a good analogy. Um, There are scientists who are not controversial. And that doesn't mean everybody agrees with everything they say, but everybody agrees this person really knows what he or she is talking about. Okay, Eric Lander is a good one. He's not a Nobel Prize winner, but anybody who knows Eric Lander, the head of the the Whitehead Institute for for Genetic Research at MIT, he's just... He's an outstanding scientist, and a lot of people like that. So Stephen Hawking, uh, Penrose, Roger Penrose, uh, Anton Seilinger, you know, these are all uh, people who are alive, and there are many others. They're not controversial at all. That doesn't mean you agree with everything they say, but if if you disagree with them, you disagree with a lot of respect. So that is true for science. And then there are scientists, and I'll mention one, what is his name, the biologist, um, with the morphogenic fields. Sheldrake. Sheldrake. Now, he used to teach it. I think it was Cambridge. I think he used to teach at Cambridge. He's controversial. Now, when, when you say controversial, it doesn't mean he's stupid or, he's, or even that he's wrong. But among mainstream biologists, number one, he's not a materialist. So that already makes him controversial. As a biologist, biologists are generally materialistic. That's where the mainstream is. That's how to be non-controversial. At least that's one big step in the right direction. Be a materialist, you've got your, you're pretty well covered. Well, Sheldrake is not, and he's, been, he's delved into a lot of very adventuresome ideas and has done um, research that just doing the research at all is controversial. I read one detailed account by him of his doing... A study, as far as I can tell, it was utterly rigorous, and he had no no axe to grind. It was all, and this is what it was. It was an interesting study. Of, it was studying, <laughs> but as soon as I say the word, you can say, "Oh, that's controversial." Well, yeah, it is. Canine clairvoyance, <laughs> the clairvoyance of dogs. Now, to a lot of people, that's a <laughs> give me a break. Unless you had a dog that's clairvoyant, you say, yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> my, do- my dog's clairvoyant. Here's what he did. Here's what he did. But it was a flat out, it was, it was like a good chemistry test. I mean, it was just flat out. Here, here's what we did. It's transparent what we did. He found dogs that have a good connection with their owners. There are lots of them. And so the owner is like a, a banker. And... He comes, at, comes home at different hours, so he's not just totally regular. The man's not stupid. That is, Sheldrake, I think anybody thinks he's stupid is not well-informed. This man is a very, very intelligent man, and he does very controversial work. So you've got somebody who's working downtown, but they come home at different times during the day. They have an une- uneven schedule, and the dog is very attached. A lot of dogs are very, very attached to their masters. And so what he would do, would he would be, so he would be having a videotape, video camera on the dog, and then he would have the owner give a phone call to him, to Sheldrake, whoever is running the experiment, I'm about to come home now, I'm I'm leaving my desk, and I'm going towards the car. And he'd make that decision, I'm coming home now. And so Sheldrake would know exactly what time that happens, in the meantime, he's got a video camera on the dog. Well, what happened time and time and time again, as soon as that person has the, now the intention, I'm coming home, the dog would, would get up and come over to the, c- 
come over to the, the window waiting for the master to arrive. Now, this is a really easy thing to see whether it's just statistically washes out. It's, it's not difficult. But what he found was statistically, these dogs, they picked up something when the master decided to come home. Again and again and again, they would come and they would be waiting expectantly, ready for the master to walk in the door. Okay? So there's the research. Did the dog pick up something from the master when the master is about to come home? It's a simple yes or no question. And the videotape is there, and the, and the dog was not on the cell phone. <laughs> you know, they made sure of that. And so it's a simple, simple question. It's a totally unorthodox question. It's a, a question that, you know, most non-controversial biologists would never ask. He asked it because his worldview is such that this might be possible. And for most biologists, don't even ask the question because we already know the answer because in our worldview, that shouldn't happen. So he did his research, and he did it very carefully, as far as I can tell, statistical analysis to make sure that it couldn't wash out. And then he found his, and he found his data. This is way beyond, way beyond just average, you know, random chance. And so he sent his article to, in his English, and it was to a, the, the major journal in England uh, that's about pets. It's Pet Journal or something like that. I can't remember the name of the journal, but it's the one that, it's all about pets, I think especially dogs. And he submitted it, and before he could say fiddlesticks, the answer came back and said, we're not reviewing your paper. We're not, re not going to review it. And he went back and said, well, but you've not even had a chance to look at the data yet. I mean, uh, this is a, an empirical study. You, have, have you checked the data? And they said, no, we're not going to check the data. Because we know that can't happen. It's silly. So who's controversial? Scientists, from the time of Galileo, have earned our respect. They have my respect. The scientific community as a whole has my respect. Why? Because from the time of Galileo, especially, they've been willing to challenge unquestioned assumptions and put it to the test of experience be as meticulous, as rigorous, as open-minded and unbiased as they possibly can. When they find unexpected results, then they go check it again, and they get other people to check it again, until, like the phases of, the, of, of Venus and so forth, so many people have replicated it, that even though that should, should have been absolutely impossible according to what had been assumed for 1,400 years, talk about an assumption, that the sun goes around the Earth, but not... That is, its whole geocentric system. That not as the phases of, the, of Venus are not possible with the Ptolemaic system. It's not possible. But Galileo saw it through his telescope in 1611. He saw the phases of Venus. And then anybody can look. You know where Venus is. It's really easy to find. And then watch. Watch carefully, sustained fashion, with your telescope and your telescope and your telescope. Well, a whole bunch of people saw it. So even though the church tried to then, you know, tried to ward off the, the, geo the heliocentric system for quite some time after that, what they, couldn't, what they couldn't do and didn't do was say, Galileo had an eye problem. His telescope is no good. Venus doesn't really have phases. Because they had a whole bunch of monks, Dominican monks especially. They had their telescopes, and they were lapping this up. And they, yeah, by gum. Venus has phases. So that's the greatness of science. 
And that's why it has my respect and many other people's respect, let alone all the benefits, of course, of course, of course. But who's controversial when a scientist then refuses to look at data because it goes against assumptions that are 400 years old? When Galileo challenged assumptions that were 1,400 years old, he was a great scientist. He was controversial with respect to the church. He's absolutely not controversial with respect to the scientific community ever since his time. He's the gold standard. So to my from my perspective, the editor of that magazine, he's controversial. If you're pretending that you're re re turning this down because of science, then you're a very controversial scientist because you're one of those scientists who refuses to look at data that challenge your assumptions, and that makes you a disgrace to the scientific tradition. And you're controversial. I reject you. Now, if somebody, and he said, but well, why don't you have somebody else replicate it? No, no need. You don't need to do that. We already know the truth. Dogs aren't clairvoyant, stupid. That's all we need is to ridicule you. So who's controversial? So these are controversial. Now, so I gave that as a big, big long parallel. There is actually in the Tibetans, this is the community I know best. Theravada I've peeked into, I've lived in Sri Lanka for a little while, and East Asia Buddhism is really something I know a little bit about intellectually, but I don't know, I'm not an insider at all. But for the Tibetan, I've had a wonderful teachers from all four traditions, and my primary teaching is, uh, training has been in Gelukpa and, and Nyingma, Nyingma Kagyu, but heavy on Nyingma. And then what I've received from Sakya has just been absolutely wonderful. So I, I, I have a pretty good sense of who the really the Stephen Hawking's and the, you know, Anton Seinigans and so forth are of these four traditions. I have a pretty good sense, right? at least among those who are well-known. Now, there are yogis back in caves in Tibet I don't know anything about, and they may be, a, you know, diamonds. I think I'm almost certain there are such people. I don't know anything about them. But I've met some of them. Oh, yeah. First time I went to Tibet. One yogi, man. Had, the, had, had a, a name in Tibetan like John Smith. Name was Losan Tenzin. <laughs> it's like John Smith, you know, Losan Tenzin. I have to tell you the story. It was just, oh man. My wife and I were traveling around. We, we finally got to central Tibet and we went to Samye, Samye Ling. And met with the abbot, had a nice conversation with him. Seemed like a good monk, good abbot. And we went up to Samye Chingpuk, up to the caves up above where. Padmasambhava and other great yogis had meditated. But then back in the monastery, the abbot told me, oh, there's a, um, a visiting yogi from Kham. He's just dropped in. He's on pilgrimage. He's meditating here, meditating there. And he wanted to come to Samye for obvious reasons. He's a Nyingma yogi. He's really quite a yogi. Would you like to meet him? Yes. <laughs> and so... I knew he was from Kham, so I wasn't quite sure how well I'd understand his dialect, because some Kham dialects are pretty, pretty heavy. But um, so he took me back, took us both back. It was kind of a dark room, backside of the monastery. There was just light coming from the window. And this yogi, old, old raggedy robes, monk, sitting on a bed just by himself, a shaft of light behind him. Room quite twilight soft lighting. 
just walking into his presence to change the mind. I sat and started to have a conversation with him, was delighted to see I could understand him, talk back and forth. Every aspect of him expressed awesome humility, just awesome humility. Like there was just not even a memory of there being an ego, of I'm somebody. And he had been, I think, the senior instructor, some senior monk at a monastery back in Kham, and then after a while just wanted to go for radical simplicity. So he just moved, he did farewell to his monastery and went off and lived in a cave. He did not want to get attached to a cave like Milarepa. Then he'd hike for a while, go to another cave and hunker down. And he gradually migrated over to central Tibet and then came to this monastery where there's a whole bunch of caves. And the abbot, hearing of his arrival, asked him, oh, would you please give us some teachings while you're here? Please give us some teachings. you ask for only one teaching, okay. So, Abba said, one teaching would be great. Bodhicharvatara, guide of the Bodhisattva way of life. If you just teach that one, okay. But then when that's finished, then I'm gone. And he'll wander off to some other cave. The day I arrived, he had just begun teaching the wisdom chapter. So I think I, I spoke to him spontaneously with very great reverence. I think he might have sensed that I was speaking to him with reverence. And he said, oh, I'm just like a dog. Just like a dog. And I said, oh, if you're like a dog, I think then I must be like a pig. You know, <laughs> like that. So you see the gold standard. That was a gold standard. That's about as close to Milarepa as I'm going to get in this lifetime. With no diminished respect for any of my other teachers, but just seeing it so unadorned, just so naked, that here's a man that just, he's dharma. And there was a depth there, a serenity. He seemed to glow. So he was known. And yogis know yogis, and really great lamas know really great lamas. They know who the really outstanding scholars are, who are just scholars, but very good scholars. And that's something. That's not nothing. This person, ah, he's very knowledgeable for the text. He has an excellent textual knowledge. And they say that with respect. They don't, they don't do what Westerners sometimes do. Oh, he only knows the intellectual stuff. He's only a scholar. They never do that. They never do that. That's not easy to become a really good scholar. And so some, they say, oh, Now this person, really good debater, really sharp, really hot. Oh, that, that monk has real quality and nobility. Very peaceful, very subdued. 
That one's a real meditative, deep realization. Hard layer. Oh, Lama did That Lama is beyond concept. That Lama is inconceivable. I take refuge. So, what I'm saying here is there's peer review. There's peer review. And very often, oh, Gyatso Rinpoche is so completely non-sectarian. But he can be sharp as a razor. I mean, when he thinks some lama is full of crap, he says, ah, pretty much full of crap. You know, he, uh, he'll, he'll, he brings out his straight razor with some of them. Ah, this one, ah, it's sick. Nothing special. Ming Chapore, big name. Ah, the Gatsure. Shamdere. Disgrace. Lama di Kandi and Nisheta. That Lama, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. He's one of the old ones. He's 86 years old. And he's got this. You might recall the story that when. It must have been absolutely amazing. Right after the Exodus, 1959, 1960, 61, there were like something like 2,000, I think, order of magnitude, 2,000 monks, lamas from all the traditions were all put into a concentration camp that the British government had used during the time of Gandhi to put people like Gandhi. A political dissidents, peaceful but political dissidents. They just—it wasn't a torture place. It was just get them out of the way. They're a big nuisance for us. So it was often East, East Bengal, and of course India got independent. So they had this great big empty camp. But again, there was nothing brutal about it. It was just get these—you know—contain these people. They're a big pain in the pain in the butt. And so they had great big empty camp. And suddenly the Indian government, with its open heart, Mother India let these Tibetans come in, and they had a whole bunch of lamas and monks, and what do you do with them? Well, oh, we got an empty place for you. Come, all of you monks and lamas, come over here, you know, and they took care of them. They fed them, so this was absolutely not punishment. It was like, okay, we have some empty buildings. So you have, within a very short time, a matter of months, hundreds of monks from all of the traditions, Gaigyu, Gelu, Sakya, Nyuma, all of them coming to this one place, because that's where the Indian government was all siphoning them, right? Get them in one place, and then we'll figure out what to do with them later. Right, but get them in one place because the lay people they're going down and they're getting jobs and they're working in ro road camps and they're doing this and that and the other thing. But the monks, they're just monks. They don't have other skills on the whole. So for a little while there, a few years, you had this dynamo of a place with Zonambuchi was there, Geshe Rapnin was there, Geshe Ngawantaige was there, Lama Zerpa Lama Yishe had to have been there. Where else would they be? And but Gyatrinambuchi was there and so many of the great lamas that have since you know, become very renowned. They were all there in one place. And they had nothing to do. And so they just set up camp and started teaching Dharma and practicing and debating and so forth. They had a little, little kind of transitional monastery, but with all the traditions in one place. But then, oh, what, maybe a thousand miles away, because this is way over in East India, a thousand miles away or so, maybe longer, um, is Dharamsala, where His Holiness is. They've got Tibetan government in exile. He is clearly the head of Tibetan Buddhism. And so the, the monks way over there, the monks and lamas, all these tukus, rinpoches, young ones, old ones, all different ages, they had to be in contact with headquarters, which is like, you know, 1,000, 1,500 miles away. 
So the four traditions, monks from the four traditions, they, to communicate, make sure that they're in good you know, dialogue with his holiness, the government in exile, then each of the four traditions appointed one of their, one of their own to represent the whole tradition. So among all the Nyingmapas, they asked Gaturumbache, would you please represent all of us, be our spokesman, our emissary? So when we need to be in contact, then you hop on the train and <laughs> you head off to Dharamsala and you speak with His Holiness or His Holiness, you know, His inner circle there. So Gyatran uh, accepted that. And so he was the emissary for all of the whole Nima tradition. And then, for whatever reason, I won't try to read anything more into it, but then the, I don't know exactly what the sequence was, but then the Kagyuba said, oh, Gyatran because he's Nima Kagyu, Nima, 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 Kagyu, but both, Beiyu tradition, union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. He's a lineage holder. Then the Kagyupa said, Gyatra Rinpoche, would you represent us too? <laughs> and then, unless my memory is mistaken, then the Galupas and the Sakyapas said, yeah, would you represent us too? <laughs> so you want re representing all of them. <laughs> Going back and forth, back and forth. So I say all of this because here's a person who has really quite a global awareness of what's going on in Tibetan Buddhism in the modern world in terms of peer review. Um, he knows who's who, and a lot of the older lamas do. And so he knows the lamas that are very good in text, very good in ritual, very good in meditators, very good teachers, and so forth and so on. And then he knows those who, for whatever reason, are doing something anomalous through their behavior, for example. Like, that's, that's not... That's not what we do. Or the way they're teaching. Uh, that's not how we've been doing it for the last few hundred years. Why are you doing it that way? It's you pretty much those two. Their behavior or their teaching or often a combination of the two. Sometimes it's just a bit unusual, a bit odd. Sometimes it's like a head-on collision, type, like two locomotives coming head-on. This is what the great lamas of the past have done. 1,200 years, and this is what you're doing. Have you noticed that that's a head-on collision? And either, either they're all wrong, or you are? Or Machu Ricard, who's not controversial, uh, he and I were talking about a lama in Tibet that I'd heard about, I was very keen to, to meet, and I did, several years back. Uh, it sounded from afar, like he might be really, really, really extraordinary. And then I had my meeting with him. Well, I came away very quizzical. Really. What? That's, I have met a lot of authentic lamas. What? I kept my own counsel, and I'm not going to say his name. Maybe he's perfectly enlightened. We'll know one of these days when he dies. We'll see what he reveals, because he's made some very big claims. When he dies, that's when the poker game's over and you show your cards. <laughs> so if you say, I have a team rainbow body, and then you leave a moldering corpse behind, you remember the, the, the character from The Simpsons? Ha, ha. <laughs> 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 not so fast there, buddy. That's not rainbow. That's yuck. <laughs> moldering, stinking corpse like everybody else. So I just mentioned his name to Mathieu. 
few years back, Mathieu had also met this person. And Mathieu's comment was, if that lama's authentic, none of my other lamas are authentic. That was my sense. That was my sense. Got a big name, lots of followers. But my sense is, I've spent a fair amount of time with His Holiness, Gyatrodon Rinpoche. I've served very briefly as an interpreter just on a one-on-one -on -one with Gyawa Kamapa, translator for Dakshin Rinpoche, alternate head of the Sakya order, received empowerment from Sakya Tizen Rinpoche, Kalor Rinpoche received empowerment, and many others. Then you see, where's the gold standard? So if people are controversial, then want to know how. Galileo was controversial for his time. Darwin was controversial for his time. And some people are controversial just because they're confused. So it's a delicate something, and we want to know your opinion. Um, if there's someone, and someone comes to mind, I'll keep the name anonymous, if, it's if there's someone where His Holiness and His Holiness's office speaking for him says, we really disengage from this person. We do not support this person. And this person is controversial. And I know about this person. I don't need to say any name, but I won't have anything to do with him. I embrace him in love and kindness and compassion. Absolutely do not reject him from that. Otherwise, I'm breaking my own precepts. But do I want to cultivate a relationship? Do I want to invite him here? Do I want to go to his center? Do I want to refer any student to him? No, never. And there are other teachers like that as well. For myself, so I'll make it now personal, and, we'll, and we'll, we've gone over. For myself, I'll just say this. Um, if a lama is controversial, find out why. And check with a lama that you trust deeply and get that person's opinion, evaluation. I, I do that. So I'll check with His Holiness, I'll check with Gyatra Rinpoche, I'll check with Sakyadamana. They're my three jewels, you know. Each one of them, I have no question. Just absolutely no question about their integrity. Zero. Their integrity, their compassion, their wisdom, their authenticity, no question. Zero. And these are all old ones. They've seen it all happen. Sakyadamala, Sakya. His Holiness, Yelupa, and everything. So if someone comes controversial, check someone that you really trust in a private conversation and ask. That's what I would say. And then just my own opinion, what I've done, because I've trained under to varying extents. Sometimes it's just a single empowerment. Sometimes it's 10 years of training. 60 lamas plus, a couple, couple more than 60 lamas, primarily from the Tibetan tradition. Um, my rule of thumb is, if in terms of behavior, if the lama exhibits behavior, a lama, and I don't care how high, what, however, however many, his eminences, his holinesses, his scooby-dooness, whatever it may be, however exalted and whatever titles they have and how many Rinpoche Tuku, his excellency, blah, 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 they put on the person's name, if the person displays behavior that I would not want to emulate because I feel it would be incompatible with Dharma. And I, I'm not going to follow that. I, I'm not going to go to that person for teaching. 
doesn't matter how good it is. I, that means I'm probably missing out on some really great lamas who are displaying really bizarre behavior. But if they're playing, displaying behavior that, that I cannot in good conscience emulate, I won't follow them. I'll figure there's enough lamas like Gyatrunabache, Sakya Damala, Geshe Rapten, Geshe Nalantagi. You want me to give you a whole list of 60? I would love to emulate all of them. Every single one of them. They're ethical, they're wise, they're compassionate, they're humble, they're knowledgeable, total integrity. They're compassionate, and they do their best for their students. Then I, take, then I can take refuge, and I do. Namaste. Have a good night. Here's a footnote. Whenever I see any teacher placing himself or herself above their own teachers, above the, above the tradition itself, that's enough for me. I don't care how smart they are. I'm not interested. I don't care what they say. I don't care even if they display supernormal ability. If they place themselves above their own teachers, above the tradition, this noble tradition of the, sangha, of the Sangha. I have no interest. Really no interest at all.